This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. It's hard not to add a side of hot, crispy hash browns to your favorite McDonald's breakfast. It's even harder not to eat said hash browns before you get home. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. You have goals. Reach them fast with IU Online's accelerated degree programs. Our six- and eight-week courses are taught 100% online and can fit any schedule. Advance your career with a bachelor's in informatics. It only takes 10 minutes to apply. Earn an Indiana University degree that's valued around the world. Get started today at IU Online. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery. Well, then we say, you really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! From BBC Science Focus, this is Instant Genius, a bite-sized masterclass in podcast form. I'm Daniel Bennett, the magazine's editor, and today we're talking about mind-wandering, the thing your brain seems to love to do when it's not occupied. I'm joined by Moshe Bar, a former director of the Cognitive Neuroscience Lab at Harvard Medical School, who now heads up the Brain Research Centre at Bar Land University in Tel Aviv. His new book, Mind Wandering, How to Improve Your Mood and Boost Your Creativity, goes on sale this week and essentially examines where your mind goes when it decides to wander. When when I first saw the term mind wandering, the first thing I thought of was uh, daydreaming. But actually, you're referring to a, a more fundamental, bigger, broader process than that. So I just wonder if you could sort of define what you mean by mind wandering. Right, so daydreaming is is a subset or, a, or, or a one category of mind-wandering. So mind-wandering could be just you planning your upcoming trip, uh, planning your dinner or planning what you're going to tell your friend, right? So this is a sort of mind-wandering because you're doing it when maybe you're doing something else. Yes, yeah, so daydreaming is a type of mind-wandering, but mind-wandering is a host of operations that include also planning, fantasizing, worrying, preparing, regretting, mental simulations, that's a big part. And, uh, and I talk a lot of, uh, about this extensively in the book. I think it serves a, a, a great critical function that we usually fail to appreciate just because we don't study it. But once you, like it often happens in science, once you study a, a phenomena, you realize how complex and how critical it is. So is it fair to say it's essentially, it's almost what we're doing when we're not focused, it's sort of like the, we're not purposefully using our brain towards something. Our, our our mind is wandering. Is that is that a kind of accurate or fair description? Yeah, it's a very fair uh, description. 
I just I don't want it to apply because I'm a big fan of lying on my sofa and just wondering. And it was a long process for me to stop feeling feeling guilty about this because you realize you really you realize that you really nourish something uh, and you culture some type of thinking, you know, creative thinking, problem solving, solving that it's only possible when you're not distracted. So um, even though we have very little control over the direction that mind wandering takes, hence the wandering, yes, we can cultivate it. Why do we all seem to do this? What what do you think is the kind of function or purpose? What Why is the brain seem to be always wondering when we're not, you know, focused on something? It's a great question, and I really appreciate the way you phrase it because um, it implies that we think similarly about evolution, maybe, and about nature, that things have purpose, that the brain spends so much metabolic energy, so much energy in our body goes to our brain, and so much of the energy that goes to the brain goes to mind-wandering. You would think if it has no purpose, then why not shutting off in between tasks and in between our attempts to achieve certain goals? And yet the, the nature already decided for us that about 50% of the time for our waking hours will be spent mind-wandering. I think it's staggering, and I think it's only logical to assume, like you've implied in your question, that uh, it serves a purpose. So, of course, and this might have been the trigger for writing the book, of course that most of us are bothered about the negative aspect of mind-wandering. We feel, as I said before, we, we can we can feel guilty that we're not doing what we're supposed to do and instead we're wandering. Uh, we feel like it's a waste of time, that we cannot focus on what's going on with us. And our wandering also beyond <laughs> invoking some guilt also take us away from the moment. So thinking about all this Buddhistic teaching and, and the whole mindfulness and uh, I don't want to say trend because I think it's here to stay, but still the idea that uh, you want to be in the present as often as possible when, when your kids or when your significant other, or when your father or mother talk to you, you want to be listening and you want to be in it. When you're eating a mango, you want to feel the, all the flavors and not be somewhere else with your mind. So definitely it takes us away from the, from the, um, from the moment. And for some reason, I'm starting with the negative aspects of my modern because I do, <laughs> I'm, I'm a big fan of the positive aspects. So I leave the, the best for later. And the others are, you know, kind of a destructive type of, uh, of uh, thinking styles, such as ruminations and intrusive thoughts, things that when are hap- when they happen chronically enough, often enough, then they can uh, give rise to some clinical conditions such as depression, anxiety, etc. And I think the big uh, reason for having written this book and for people being excited about publishing it is because it provides an angle of the positive aspects of mind wandering. So I, in the book, I describe at length how it can affect our creativity and how it affects our problem solving. And one thing that people don't really realize, and I don't blame the people, it's just that, uh, we, again, we don't pause to think about it that much. But what I want to say is that one way in which our mind is amazing is it can create all these mental simulations of scenarios, either of something that you plan or something that you fantasize. You don't really need to experience it in order to do this. So when I give examples of complicated uh, simulations of what would happen if the emergency door of the, of the airplane will open and we all have to jump, that, that's one thing. But we also simulate the most mundane things. What would happen if I push this laptop that I'm speaking with more and more towards me and I, I, and I can see in my mind's eye how it would fall? And it's, it's hard to believe, but at the basis of each of, 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 of our decisions and we make thousands, if not tens of thousands of decisions a day, and I'm talking about, about the most mundane 
uh, decisions about, you know, cheesecake versus chocolate cake or well, what can I have for uh, dinner or uh, should I call now or should I call later? The most uh, mundane little things. We always run a little simulation that run on this tree, decision tree of what would happen if I go in this path or I go in this at that path. And the philosopher Karl Popper, he said once that we let our hypothesis die in our stead. That in, in a more modern uh, language, the idea here is that we run all these simulations instead of experiencing them ourselves, and we choose the one that has the most be- uh, beneficial outcome. Rather than trying to see how would it feel to come out of this building through the window, uh, you can simulate and realize this is not a preferable path. So, so it's very powerful uh, means of simulations that's part of the mind wandering. Uh, it's, it's sort of you know chunking through all that prediction work of. So that when you come to a moment, you can you can make a decision or you can act quickly and and and, and in a way that suits you. And it, and it's not just the examples you gave that were were kind of outward things that we can probably all recognise. We've all we've all had those leaps of imagination. But you also uh, make the point that it's 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 also inward as well. It's also about ourselves and ourself. A lot of the mind wandering. Yes, you're right. It's it's about the self, and and when people try to identify what's the content of mind wandering, because as you rightly pointed out from the beginning, what is mind wandering? It's it's an it's an issue that requires a finer definition. So when we as scientists, psychologists, and neuroscientists alike, and also some philosophers and psychiatrists, notice how much of the brain uh, is dedicated for just wandering, it it, it ought to play uh, some kind of of a function and. Um, and we try to identify the main function or the, mi- the main purposes of, of my monitoring. So the first one was actually the self, just as you, point, as, as you said, that thinking about the self and people that don't study this, again, this term might sound odd. It's like, are you, are you selfish? Why do you think about the self all the time? But the idea, but the idea here is really that this is our identity. This is the, the, the agent or the entity that come, that grows with us since uh, we were born in a very curious way, actually maintain its image in our eyes. I mean, our self hardly changes our image of ourselves, but this requires some representations, some mental gymnastics that, you know, how would I react to a certain event or, or something like this? So, so you know, if, if uh, your boss, if you have one, tells you we need to talk and you come by tomorrow morning and that's it, that's what you hear. You may be thinking you're getting a promotion and getting a raise and, and yada, yada, yada. So you, you kind of prepare your thank you little speech, but then you might be fired or whatever and then you prepare. So you come ready with three possible scenarios that you've already pre-stimulated yeah, with your mind wandering, with your default mode, we haven't talked about it, but can elaborate on this this network in the brain that is the platform for mind wandering. Yeah, I, I, I often find myself doing that and, and then telling myself off for being so silly, for <laughs> seeing all this noise. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely, I'm going to get to the default uh, default network in a, in a moment. Although I suppose, it, to be fair, it's going to come up in this question as well. I wanted to pick up on... You, something you said there, so that we spend an awful lot of energy and uh, resource. In the book, it was something like 45% or 50% of our time d- doing this kind of mind-wandering, uh, which is, in, you know, it's a huge amount. As somebody, because I, I studied at psychology at undergrad level, you spend most of your time learning about really purposeful cognitive thought. How do you make a decision? How do you perceive the world how do you direct your attention um so it made me wonder how did you come to how did you come to, to study this because in a way it's quite easy to test 
cognitive thought and attention and and, and thing. but this is such a shapeless wide big process how, how did you come to direct your attention here the the i think precursor or the the one of the earlier signs or the, the earlier beginnings of my of my own research program and this and in some curious way <laughs> i noticed this a couple of times in my career that a few laboratories and a few uh, researchers come up with with a with a similar big idea or universal idea or theory or framework or uh, we can give it any adjective that we want but the time is right for some certain ideas and they are developed independently i'm not claiming but by what i'm saying that people copy from each other of course there's inspiration involved etc but even in remote places you see that the time is right and several people have this aha moment at the same time and so there are these ideas, these issues. So you make connections with others and with your own work and with your future ideas to achieve this. So the earlier, be- the, the the beginning was actually that I was studying visual perception and just looking at objects and how people recognize objects. And very quickly you realize that people in real world do not see objects in isolations like we study them in the lab. We put you know a hammer or an elephant, a pencil on the on the screen one after the other, and subjects have to. Uh, recognize and you realize that the world organized is organized in arrangements in some typical arrangements context you know you expect certain things in kitchens you expect certain things on the beach or in a museum and we store this we call this statistical regularities because this is kind of statistics in your environment that keeps repeating so you know that a bedroom would contain a bed 100 percent and a pillow, maybe 90%, a lamp, maybe 70%, but a samurai sword, very close to 0%, right? So you have some probabilities attached, and we maintain this associative uh, connection for multiple purposes, but our entire memory, everything we know about ourselves, about life, about others, is connected in a, mass, in a massive net, and you can get to anything from anything, just a limited number of, oh, a certain uh, number of steps. Presenting inf- representing information in an associative manner confers at least two good or two benefits. One is that it's easy to store and retrieve. So if I learn about a new fruit and I store it next to other fruits, and sometimes you know fruits that are similar to it in taste or in appearance, this helps me both store it and then when I need to retrieve it, I know I, I, I talk I say no, but actually you know it's not a conscious process. But my mind knows where to look for it because it knows it's under uh, fruits, and you can use these associations for efficient uh, storing and retrieval. But it also helps you create uh, predictions, and we are creatures that really need certainty. Even our, the explorers uh, among us still need some kind of certainty. You need to know that when you turn your uh, chair into the back, the wall is still there, the window is still there, there is a floor, you know where your car is if you drive on, you know where your coffee maker is. So you know all these things. We have certainty. And it, it doesn't mean, I mean, I'm not talking about extreme situations. This is everyday life. We just don't realize to what extent uh, we rely on these certainties. Just as maybe as a, as a side quick story, I would say that maybe the early, earliest sign or, or, my, or trigger for this research program was when we just moved, my wife and I were just uh, dating back then, moved from Israel to Los Angeles to do my PhD. And after a couple of months, she, has, she had birthday and I was ambitious and d- decided to throw a, a surprise party at her. So that, it was really hard for me to get her out of the house, but you know, she just went out for 20 minutes and she came back uh, to a house filled with people from her world, from my university, from the neighborhood, singing happy birthday in Hebrew because I put all the letters, a lot of decorations, food, etc. And I was sure that she'll be thrilled. I was waiting with a camera back then, it was still film, waiting for her to open the door. And I just saw horror in her face. 
just sheer <laughs> horror, like what is going on? But in, in the deepest, and indeed in experiments, you see that people have a hard time distinguishing between deep surprise and, and fear because we rely so much on those predictions, the everyday predictions, what happens if I drop a dispenser or what happens if I tell you something inappropriate or, or, or all these things. So, so it really, it provides stability in our life and it provides certainty. So associations help you expect, you know, when you know that there is a, ch- a table, you know, there'll be a chair most likely, right? And when you take the car, you know that, you know, uh, you need uh, certain levels of gas and you know how to obey the law and the signs and all these things. So associations help us anticipate what's happening that, you know, I could prepare for the conversation with you because I've had conversations not necessarily about this topic and not necessarily in a podcast and not necessarily in this day, but I can draw from my memory with associations and project it to new situations. And this is how we can lean on our memory and our experience. So we we take our memory and and use it to generate more certainty in our environment. And, and, you know, the lack of uncertainty can then uh, uh, increase the chances of anxiety and depression, etc. So the idea here is really that we rely on this certainty and to get to this certainty, uh, we take our memory and association, what comes with what and what is right and what is wrong. And we can prepare for the future. So, and, and you just asked me about my own. Uh, yeah. So, how, how did you go from there to to realizing that we perhaps have this, you know, time when our brain is essentially testing out these associations and rehearsing them and, and playing with them? So th- then, the more I thought about predictions, that I had this big aha moment that, as I said, was shared by multiple uh, researchers across the world, that, wait a minute, the brain really creates predictions. It always is engaged in foresight, trying to understand what's coming in the future just because of the certainty issue. And started to think about the brain as a prediction machine, as people sometimes uh, uh, like to say. And when we played with this, with predictions, and and we put people in fMRI, in in the MRI magnets, and looked at the activity, we noticed that there's a massive network that's active when people think about the future, when people simulate possible scenarios. And when you look at the literature, we realized that it's actually the same network that people in other domains of neuroscience have dubbed as the default mode network. That is the network uh, that is... Active when you're not doing anything, when you're not busy with a certain task. So when you're not flying an F-15 or operating on somebody's brain or doing something that's fully, fully uh, demanding of your mental resources, you can actually activate uh, and simulate and, and, and wonder at the same time. And this network actually overlapped with our so with our network. So we realized that we can explain what happens in mind wandering through our research on predictions and future, but then it ex- expanded to other domains yeah so so this this default mode network just to elaborate on that so so at the same well so so at the same time people were just starting to um and this is something you you explained in the book were were starting to you know uh discover fmri functional magnetic resonance imaging so they were able to look at the the brain active and and they noticed that in fact the the brain was never not active it was seemed to always be doing something and so you were able to to line up this area that was seemed to always be active, and and that was the same area that you were finding in your studies when you gave them these kind of associative tasks. Is that right? Exactly. Yeah. So this overlap implies that this is the process that's taking place there. It's not the only process, as you said before. The first and foremost is the self representing yourself as a, as an entity, and and with with comp, with different characteristics and complexities, etc. 
And that, that that made me wonder, is it is it always a thing that we are aware of or is it something that we can sometimes be aware of? Like when you talked about you, you, you sit on the plane and you look at, you stare at that door, uh, that emerges, perhaps because it's such an unusual thing to, to see it demands your attention. And so you're very conscious of that kind of projection that you do. Um, do is the idea here that, that we're also doing it uh, and sometimes we're just unaware of these simulations, I suppose, our brain is running? By and large, this is right, that we're not aware of our mind wandering. Usually you're getting, you're being caught wandering, either by yourself or by others, right? And you're being caught because you're not, you, know, you just catch yourself wondering, oh my God, I'm wondering, let's go back to uh, what, I, what I was doing here. And uh, one of my uh, uh, little intentions and hopes in, in the book is to make people more comfortable about letting themselves wander without, you know, just actually it's a, it can be a productive process. So unless you're ruminating or doing something destructive there, it can actually be a, a bless. Just on that, is so So you talk about we, we, we catch ourselves doing it. Is it something that is spontaneous? So by that, you know, does it, because uh, all, all the examples that we kind of talk about uh, perhaps sound like they need triggers but actually you're sort of you're kind of saying it's more pervasive than that is that right so yes you're right it is spontaneous but at the same time you know following freud and others you you, you imagine that it's not really detached from absolutely anything that happened before so you know maybe sub some subconscious thoughts or uh incubations on some ideas that you wanted to solve before and forgot about them been pushed back to your subconscious, so to speak, which is a contentious uh, a term, but uh, still we can work with it. And then when you're doing something mundane, your your mind would wander to a specific place. And what I'm saying is that you're right, it's spontaneous, but this specific place you wandered to had some origin, either something that caught your attention in, in the environment or some word that if your friend just said in their sentence threw you to some other chain of associations and you kind of lost track with what he's saying and you uh, follow your your wandering, but but yes, it's uh, it's it's spontaneous, and we have very little uh, control over when to start and when to stop it. Okay, so so let's let's get into the I guess one of the the, the main the, the main points is so you've got good and you've got bad that comes out of this this habit that we have. Let's start with the good since we we mentioned a little bit of the bad. So let's let's start with the the good side. So so so, so you're saying that mind wandering can be a force for good. How, how is that? There are a few examples or a few domains. Let me just uh jump to one that's uh less intuitive and that's our ability to learn to learn from imagined experiences. Let me take you back to childhood. So you, as a child, uh, learned that if you touch the stove with your hand, uh, it makes, you know, it burns you. And now you know not to touch stoves anymore, right? And then you carry this knowledge. You experienced it. You, you maybe cried. Maybe you know, suffered to some extent. But it doesn't have to be bad experiences. Also good experiences. You know, you remember that something feels a certain way. You store it. You experience it. This is the best way to learn. So a lot of our memory of, of things, how to do things, how things happen, where our things look, is from actual experience that as you know, going back to the Karl Popper uh, quote, quote, actually some of this experience could kill you, could injure you, could uh, make you... But this is real experience and real knowledge. But with our ability to simulate on our default network, default mode network with, with mind wandering, 
actually allows us to experience things but not really experience them. So you can close your eyes and imagine uh, the taste of a sandwich with sardines and jam and strawberry jam. So even, even though you didn't taste something like this in your life, you can envision how it would taste and that you're, you're not interested in trying it, right? So you can actually imagine or this example with the door, emergency door in, on the plane or um, uh, with my daughter's uh, dress uh, being stuck in a carousel, the luggage uh, carousel. And I have this whole scenario running in my mind. And at the end of it, and after I'm done with these simulations, you know, the, I have a simulation of a script ready for to be executed should the, the occasion arise. So I can store this and call it memory in quotation marks because this is not real memory of real experience. It's memory of a simulation, but it is as realistic as real experience. So our brain with its ability to simulate saves us the need to experience everything physically in order to learn it. You can actually learn a simulation. And now I'm trying to, if I, if I tell you something now that you haven't thought about, but you can have in, in two minutes, uh, you think about a scenario of how you perform it, then you're ready to do it anytime. And, and you're more advanced than before. So, so learning from imagined experience, uh, uh, I think is a, is an amazing thing, but it's, uh, it, it is the basis of each of our decisions. As I said, when you, when you facing, uh, more than one option, which happens to us many times a day, even with a, with a, with a little list of other decisions, then you can run a quick simulation that the thing you do to choose A versus B, even if it's, uh, if you're not privy to it, you run a quick simulation. It's like, I feel better if I go here versus I feel better if I go there. And sometimes it's so, we're so unconscious that we think it's an in, in intuition, but the, the truth is that we actually simulate the possible. So simulations is a big thing. Uh, reminiscing, uh, preparing for for uh, okay for you know, a job interview or a certain uh, tough conversation, you kind of rehearse it in your mind and choose the best path. And and to do this, you actually not only have to think about yourself. You're talking with somebody else, and you know this other person. So how would this specific person react? Some people are more bold. Some people are more introvert. Some people are more easily offended. So you take the specific person in mind. And we call this theory of mind, you know, your thoughts about uh, the inner intentions and thoughts and responses of that person in front of you. We tend to think that we are much better at it than we really are. But nevertheless, our brain is constantly uh, aiming and trying to understand the other just as much as we try to understand ourselves. It just You just suddenly reminded me, I once wrote a piece about um, visualization and the power of it. And um, I interviewed... Uh, Johnny Wilkinson, a very famous English rugby player who is fantastically good at kicking the ball between the the posts from very far away. And he said in the time between him putting the ball on the ground and him taking his run up, his, his, his step back, he would have visualized himself kicking that ball between the posts eight or nine times so that when he came to do it, it just felt like the most easiest natural thing uh, ever and so um that just suddenly reminded me of that so so it's so so it's there for for simulation but you you also talk about how you can kind of harness it and i don't know maybe not harness it but revel in it for your own creativity and, and to boost your own kind of mood can you just just sort of tell us about that my mother is related both to mood and uh to creativity 
I'll maybe just uh, talk about them in isolation and connect them because I think also the connection between mood and creativity is not necessarily as common knowledge as it should be, and it is uh, relevant to each of us. When we talk about mind-wandering, even though we just uh, listed the few processes that take place with, within our, the, the realm of our mind-wandering, the positive and the negative, but these are the processes, uh, we can think also about the way we think, uh, the way we wander. So a certain mind-wandering episode could be just you thinking about a recipe for something. You want to make up a new recipe, or you're ruminating on something specific, or you uh, keep uh, replaying a, a conversation that you had yesterday and annoyed you or made you happy. But in all these cases, we are very narrow on a topic and we try, and sometimes we try to solve a problem. We're also very narrow on the topic. But So this is narrow mind wandering in a sense, or, or, or narrow thinking in terms of the semantic, semantic I think is a word that uh, easily understood, right? So it's, it's like semantic content. You You remain within the same vicinity of, you know, a recipe for a lemon cake or or a conversation of yesterday. But the thinking and wondering could actually be also much more expensive, right? It can be more, it can be broader and go to different crazy uh, solutions. So you're trying to fix the window and you don't have the right material and you try to improvise with all these other things that you might have at home. So you really think about how, you know, maybe flour and water will help you hold this uh, window until you get the right uh, glue. But maybe not such a great example, but the idea is really that you jump from one thought to another. And I gave a few in the book that you can start with, you know, with the moon and end up thinking about uh, Tibet. And, you know, there's a whole chain of associations. We often see that the more creative people provide associations that are way more original and less ordinary. So many people, when you ask them about the means of transportation, would you say a car immediately? But a more creative person might say a camel or an elevator, right? So these are things that are legit. They're, you know, they're correct answers, not as common, but, but you know, the more creative uh, of us will provide them just as quickly. So creativity and, and uh, broad associative thinking go hand in hand. And science, not only ours, have, has established this uh, a while ago already. The second thing that we're seeing in the lab, and this started as a different um, branch of research in my lab, but then converged to the default network, is that because people in depression, and I wasn't always interested in depression, I started being interested in clinical uh, issues, specifically in mood disorders, when I realized how related it is to my uh, interest in associations and predictions. People in depression ruminate, and they have a hard time taking the big context uh, into account. So when they ruminate, they're really stuck on the same topic over and over. And we do in the lab do uh, a show that we can expand your way of thinking merely by, by showing you words that are chains of associations that expand and go uh, beyond a certain topic versus cha- chains of words that remain on the same topic. Yeah. So so just to give a quick example, you t- you had the moon. So like you could, you could go from moon to dark to side to Pink Floyd to the elephant in the video, to the wall, and then I, th- I think you yeah, had the China, and then Tibet. So you're in, the, in in your in your lab, you're showing people that kind of associative list as a kind of stimulus, right? Right. Compare this with with we we'll start again with the moon, but continue to remain with the so moon crater, light, uh, and, and night, uh, Neil Armstrong. So it stays on. So it's the same number of associations. They all start in the same place. 
but one of them emulates rumination, the other one goes expensively. And you see that those that, and it sounds ridiculous, it's almost like a toy experiment, just showing people words, but you can actually uh, significantly improve their mood. I mean, significantly in terms of the statistics, it's not that they come in depressed and leave giddy, but they do uh, uh, show improved mood with our uh, uh, standard uh, questionnaires and, and measurements. So expensive thinking seems to be at the basis both of better mood and of creative thinking. And both of them are actually affected by mind wandering and by the default network. So when we can, when your wandering is expensive, you'll be both more creative and in better mood. And I just want to qualify, if, if we can, just for another uh, second here, that when I talk about creativity, I think people should realize, if they haven't already, that creativity is not like a destiny. And each one of us can be more or less creative, depending on many aspects. So we already identified many of the parameters or the factors that go into making you more creative or less creative. So we can, in the lab, make you more creative than you came in or less creative by, for example, loading you cognitively with maybe long strings of uh, numbers to remember or some stress all these things can take away. So the same person, I'm not saying all of us can be Leonardo da Vinci, but we can be more creative or less creative depending on contextual and environmental factors. So, so the and, and mind wandering can be a great manipulator of this ability of ours to be creative. So, so that was one exercise that you did the the, the expansive associative words. Are, are there other exercises that people can try? Because it was it was particularly interesting to see that in your studies. That not only, like like you said there, um, not only did they feel or you know were they able to solve problems more creatively, they were also experienced an improved mood. So are there, are there other kind of exercises that maybe you do in your day to day life, or that kind of when you've got a problem you need to solve, or you know there's something in the background you need to deal with that you 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 tr- you do to try and get your creative juices playing. Running is one <laughs> great tip I could give. Uh, but beyond effortful uh, attempts, I would say that what I just uh, innuended before, but maybe should, sh- is worth elaborating now, is the issue of cognitive load, right? So it's harder for you to be creative if you are bombarded with phone calls from your kids that uh, want all kinds of things or just emails and, and uh, things you need to remember and all kinds of sensitivities in the room. This load, so you can think about our brain as having 100% resources, and now everything, just like uh, computers back then and also now, need to allocate and and distribute their their, uh, capacity to different demands. So if I need to be uh, reading, I can't be thinking that much. Right, I'm thinking in between the words. But if you're if, if you're busy with one thing, then it takes away from your ability to do the others. And this, by the way, also is correct, and I think this is stunning, and I keep thinking about this, is that with cognitive load, we also are less able to enjoy aesthetics of art, for example. I think this is, this is for me, it's fascinating that you can actually have less capacity to enjoy beauty. Even This is not, no, less survival-related just because your mind is busy with other things. So here we talk about you know, quality of experience. So eat, would eating the same mango would feel the same for you and for me. Uh, 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 you know, assuming everything else is possible, everything else is equivalent, then it really depends on our state of mind and how busy we are with other things. You know, if our mind is preoccupied, then you know, how often have I eaten ice cream mindlessly? It's like 
after the fact, like, have I had this ice cream already or not? Just because, you know, you don't really pause. So, so when you're busy with, with one thing, then it takes away from the other. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's why, it's, <laughs> it's why if you, if you, if you know, if you, if you buy, I don't know, maybe you buy a bottle of wine on holiday and it's in, you, you sit there in a beautiful place, you drink it, it tastes so good. And then you bring it home and you're <laughs> having a busy day. Maybe that's why it doesn't taste as good as, uh, when you're sat in the sunshine. Oh, is that is that perhaps also why we have this very, I mean, certainly I do it. I often have my best um, ideas or my best, uh, we, you know, eureka moments when I'm in the shower. And perhaps, it, like you say, in a way it's, there's, it's not very, there's, not, there's no, there's nothing else going on, but also it's the morning. So the day hasn't, put a big cognitive load on me (laughs) you know there's not a lot I haven't got to my to-do list I haven't got to worry about anything else other than just you know getting 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 clean is that is that why the shower is such a a place for ideas exactly and and you know there are other there are other ways of you know being immersed I talk a lot about immersion in the book and being immersed kind of I see it sometimes as a not only at the top level of enjoying an experience but also best way to restart your you know the chain of thought so to speak is it sort of sometimes as as simple as that you need to you need to remove yourself from whatever it is and Uh, you probably experience it uh, yourself as well that really uh complete silence so complete lack of stimulation is also not good for creativity so just uh, being alone in a white room with nobody else, no windows, no stimulation. Uh, this is hardly the best environment for creating. So you do need stimulation. You do, you do need uh, some things to trigger, to ignite ideas. But if I had to phrase it in, in one or two uh, sentences, I would say that it has to be the right stimulation, so to speak. So you need to be surrounded by the thing and not to be loaded. I really like this word because it, it is a tax that, that processes take on our ability to be creative and also to feel better. Yeah. That was Moshe Bar there explaining what your brain's doing when it goes wandering. If you'd like to hear Moshe and I dig a little deeper into the darker side of mind wandering and meditation, check out Instant Genius Extra, a bonus podcast available via subscription on Apple's podcast app. Of course, if you'd like to know more, Moshe's book, Mind Wandering, is out now. And for those who want to try and give their mood and creativity a little nudge in the right direction, there's a great little appendix at the back where Moshe provides some real-world exercises that might help. Thank you for listening. The Instant Genius Podcast is brought to you by the team behind BBC Science Focus magazine, which you can find on sale now in supermarkets and newsagents, as well as on your preferred app store. Alternatively, do come find us online at sciencefocus.com. See you next time. Thank you.